Good morning, Matt. Good morning, sir. I've mentioned it before, but I think uh, the audience can't see, so it's funny to me. I don't know why I, I am always... My eye goes right to the... Um, behind you is a nuclear explosion on a poster. Yeah, I think as children of the Cold War, we're trained to uh, watch for nuclear explosions. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. I'm now going to, I'm just going to go under the desk here. I'm going to duck. Yeah, there's no reason we can't Skype from under the desk, right? <laughs> That's right. Um, Skype from under, oh, here's a fun, you probably knew this fact, just a random thing I heard yesterday. I love listening to the BBC shows, especially the BBC science shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, always have. So great. It is something that inspires me to do this. And uh, they were, it was a show about, it was about how the cardinal directions, the importance of cardinal directions throughout all civilizations, how virtually all civilizations have oriented their cities according to north, south, east, west in some way. Mm-hmm. In the midst of all this, there was a, a, a little factoid they dropped that um, in, um, I'm not sure where this was, was this in uh, the Middle East? That there, the northern, north was considered where the devil, basically north was evil. The evil direction, right? South would be warmth, life, spring, things like that. East would be the rising of the sun. Um, Well, actually, the east would be spring. South would be like summer. Um, The west would be like fall. And north would be like winter and evil. Kind of like Game of Thrones. And uh, one one explanation they, they postulated for this was that the barbarians would always come from the north. Mm hmm. Right. And actually, actually, maybe this was more Greece or something. Anyway, um, the barbarians would always come from the north. And the northernmost city was Megiddo. Megiddo. Mm-hmm. And Megiddo. so that, and, and then so when they were um, constructing the myths of, um, that became the story of uh, the end of the end of days, the final battle, they said that it, the, wor- the end of it or the worst battle would be at Megiddo. Because that city was actually in real life destroyed many, many times over and over and over again. And that is where the word Armageddon comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's well known. Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a good guess anyway. Right? Uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. That's hard to know for sure. Um, but yeah, the idea that the, the north is the place where the barbarians live is, you know, at least ancient Greece. And if not before that. So the, uh, the ancient Greek writers like Herodotus we're always worried about the, the Hyperboreans, um, the, the people who live beyond the cold areas. What are they called? Uh, the hyper? Hyperboreans. Hyper, B-O-R-E-A-N-S? Yeah, so, you know, like Aurora Borealis is right. the Northern Lights. So uh-huh. that's the same route there. Um, and that's also where uh, um, the Conan stories, the Conan the Barbarian stories are set. They're in Hyperborea. Oh, Okay. I don't know much. I, I know that Conan is a, Conan is a, there's a series there and the stories, but uh, I only think of Conan the, Conan the O'Brien. <laughs> <laughs> Conan the O'Brien is my superhero. Really, that's been done. It's, yeah, surely. That's fascinating. Ooh, that's a, there's some good what the if material there. The Hyperboreans from the North. Mm-hmm. So continuing. All right. Picking up where we last left off. This is uh, the exciting conclusion yeah. of the trilogy 
uh, working title, The Haiku mm-hmm. in the Collider. Poetry in the Pot. That doesn't make sense. No, that I <laughs> where that came from. Um, if you have not listened to the pre- previous two episodes, check them out. You don't have to, because as I mentioned last time, nothing we do makes sense anyway. I don't think <laughs> l- listening to it in linear fashion is going to help. But it, those are fabulous episodes, by the way. They're very interesting. So you, you can listen to them at any point. Um, welcome to this one. You've, you've stumbled into the trilogy. If you've been hanging on to find out what's going to happen, you're in the same boat that we are. This mm-hmm. is a show, um, we call it What the If. It's basically what if we throw in the the because we're sassy. Mm-hmm. And the exclamation point. And or the exclamation point. The, the, the question yeah, mark and exclamation. Yeah, mm-hmm. we, as much punctuation as needed emphasize the fact that we we're very emphatic about wanting to know what what the if would happen. And uh, we take uh, some idea, just one idea, one strange non-scientific or basically imaginary idea um, as one does when, when one is writing a science fiction story, Um, you pick one strange thing and then you try to keep everything else in the story based in science. Mm-hmm. You get one gimme and, um, <laughs> right. And, uh, and then you, you try to lock it down. So, which is kind of a total, totally fun way to do thought experiments, just throw something out there. And then the work it takes to sort of tie it back down to reality is pretty awesome. And kind of is without going too deep into this, which we've talked about it more in earlier episodes, but like, in some way, that's what science, science you, 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 you can look at a phenomenon that um, you don't understand. You have no idea what is that. Mm-hmm. Like magnets always seems like a good example. I imagine people thought, what is that? And before science, perhaps they would have used myth to try to answer what was going on. But um, when science begins, they begin to look for physical reasons, physical explanations for why this phenomenon exists. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so we're doing that. And in one of our more extreme scenarios, we've imagined picture yourself, picture for yourself, the mission control at the large Hadron collider, the world's largest, most powerful atom smasher. Mm-hmm. As they used to call them. Yeah. I think that's that I'll never stop calling it that. And that's just cool. Um, but super collider is also a pretty awesome word. Um, it's in, uh, Switzerland and, uh, part of, it's like the Swiss French border, Mm -hmm. but basically, uh, out just outside Geneva. Is that right? Uh, that might be the closest town. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, in the mission control, let's imagine, you know, it kind of looks like mission controls do in the movies and at NASA and, and elsewhere, a big room, a lot of people, uh, wearing button down shirts tucked in their pants. Or not tucked in, depending. Or not tucked in, depending on, yeah, their sensibilities. Mm-hmm. And these are people that come from all over the world, by the way. And uh, they're looking at a million screens, all kinds of data coming in on all the screens. And um, th- mostly they're looking at lines of data, lines on the screen that, that will, uh, and numbers. And they are watching artic- particles. Is it mostly protons? Or do they do different? Uh, well, so usually protons into protons um, is the initial collision. But then the right. things that come off of it are all sorts of weird stuff. 
Right. Exactly. So they, they take, um, they shoot, uh, a bunch of protons one by one in one direction and in the other direction around a certain, mm-hmm. and then they both go, one goes clockwise, the other goes counterclockwise around the circle. And it's a big stream of both. Right. And, yep. um, in that big stream, there's some of them are going to hit each other. And every time they do, you get like a mini explosion, like mm-hmm. yeah, uh, a particle shower is the technical term. Oh, that's good. Particle shower. That sounds like a yeah. Ronco product. <laughs> <laughs> Bye now. Bye now. The particle shower. <laughs> it's, it's got ions, so it's good for you. <laughs> um, it's made of normal matter. No one has made something like this before. But wait, there's more. Oh, yes. Um, so when the particles explode and the particle shower happens, it, it kind of, for, for any individual explosion, looks a little bit like a, uh, one firework. Yep. Yeah. Blowing up. And mm-hmm. uh, you get all these things streaming outward. Or, you know, more poetically, perhaps like a flower or something like that. Um, yeah, something like that. Maybe a dandelion. Yeah, like a dandelion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And by measure, using uh, very powerful computers and very fast sensors they can measure all that and say okay but all the explosion revealed all these different smaller particles and Mm -hmm. they can study that and then they get numbers and lines on the screen okay great it's amazing achievement but something we're used to seeing and what we have imagined is a totally bizarre moment where there are, uh, um, instead of a straight line, as expected, let's say, or even with a bump here or a bump there, instead of that, they look very, very, very closely at the line, and it looks rippled, a line of data, whatever. And they see that um, by blowing up the picture as much as they can, so they see the individual pixels, and they discover that there are Japanese uh, kanji letters which can, which is then translated, and they realize it's a haiku. There's a haiku appears on the screen, the Large Hadron Collider. Totally insane. Yeah. What the if? It. 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 And so, when we last left off, I think what, what was it? They they had just they had to figure out why. Well, they were trying to figure out. Okay, oh, it was the first. Their first thought would be that this is fake. Right. Yeah. It's this either- is a prank. A, fr- a prank or a mistake. Right. And um, they would then uh, stop all community. They would try to keep it a secret um, mm-hmm. as much as possible. Do you think that looking at um, the, the, obviously the most recent uh, true, truly um, momentous event there was the discovery of the, uh, or confirmation, I suppose, of the Hig- existence of the Higgs boson. Yeah. And, was that something like, do those stories leak out a little bit ahead of time or? Oh, so I should say nowadays they do. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, the, uh, what we think of as kind of the, the conventional system for reporting scientific discoveries is essentially like 300 years old, right? So it used to be that, you know, you'd send a letter from London to Paris and then a letter from Paris to London. Right. So it was, so confirmation of things would be, weeks or months. Okay. And then it speeds up a little bit as communication speeds up generally. Um, but well through the 20th century, it's still essentially the same. Um, and it isn't until the, I don't know, 1990s or so with the advent of things like email 
and uh, email lists that it becomes possible and even likely for things to get um, leaked. So there's kind of an interesting example of this is um, so astronomers who are watching the sky for things like asteroids that are going to crash into us. Um, but so it takes, uh, multiple observations from multiple people to confirm that something like an asteroid exists and figure out what its trajectory is. So normally, so it, it used to actually be postcards that they would mail back and forth. Oh, really? So, so it takes some months. Um, and postcards and as, that, that, that anyone could read? Cause it's not. Well, it's postcards that astronomers would send to each other. So oh, wow. nobody would... But nobody would bother looking at these things because they're postcards with numbers written on them. Um, and then <laughs> as technology updates, so the postcard turns into a telegram and the telegram turns into an email. Right. Um, so by the middle of the 90s, this is now done with an email list for obvious reasons, right? Right. Um, the problem, of course, is that uh, email lists, no one actually pays attention to who's on an email list. That's right. right. You, you just do it. Yeah. So a bunch of science journalists got themselves on these lists. This is why I get so many crazy uh, things from my mother that she yeah. is passing on from all the <laughs> other people in the retirement community that they are passing on from who knows where. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in the middle of the nineties, um, one guy notices uh, uh, what they call a potentially hazardous asteroid. That is an asteroid mm-hmm. who it looks like their trajectory is going to cross the, the path of the earth. And this happens a fair bit that you notice these and then People, then you tell your buddy astronomers to look at the same asteroid and calculate the trajectory. Um, and they do, and usually it's nothing. Um, but unfortunately, this time, this person sends out an email saying there's a potentially hazardous asteroid. You should, everyone should look at this. Um, but of course, uh, not realizing that journalists were on this email list. <laughs> so the astronomers get this message and think it's a normal kind of thing. You know, we'll spend the next couple of months making observations and deciding uh, whether or not it's a big deal. But the journalists get an email in their box saying potentially hazardous asteroid that's going to crash into the earth. <laughs> so it becomes news instantly. And the astronomers are all baffled because it's on CNN before they before many of the professional astronomers had even heard about it. Wow. And then within a couple of hours, the astronomers, uh, folks at JPL, crank out the calculations and say, no, there's no danger at all. Um, but sort of a full news cycle had elapsed by that <sighs> time. So nowadays, these things get leaked uh, fairly consistently. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. um, you know, our, our information borders are so porous that uh, these things get out very quickly. Right. Oh, that sounds like a cool story. But I don't remember that news story happening but um so the news <laughs> so what happens is, this is what's bizarre about this situation mm-hmm. news leaks out yep. there's a haiku on all the screens right because it's real so they double check they double check they double check and we're jumping forward to the point where they've confirmed that there is no you know they're going to sure run a million a tests it probably is it kind of like it seems like it takes months for them to go through all the checking, like when the Higgs boson was discovered. Yeah, that's, that's generally right. Yeah. Months. And um, one thing they can, one thing they're doing is they're continuing to just smash protons together and get more and more and more and more data. Is that right? Um, yeah, usually, usually you sort of do a run of um, you cycle the, the accelerator for a certain amount 
of time right. and it generates data during that time and then you shut it down uh, while you're analyzing the data or you let somebody else do a different experiment and so on. Right. And I'm just curious, would you, can you see, are there flashes of light or anything if there's a camera down in the tube? Um, that's a good question that I don't know the answer to. Yeah. Um, I would, I mean, they must have cameras down there. I would not expect a lot of visible radiation. From yeah. This. Yeah. Um, that's even more amazing. This all happens invisibly. Yeah. Or, you know, so, so tiny. Um, and so word leaks out, there's a haiku. Now the very, look, the number one question on everyone's mind in our audience now and in the world of this fictional story is what the what does the haiku say? <laughs> right? And um, I think it's okay. It, as the science fiction writer at this point, I'm actually going to say, uh, we don't know. We, we haven't yet decided that in this part. No, what, the, exactly what the haiku right? says. Because yeah. I want to I feel like that becomes another story. Yeah, that's right. I think the, the first thing to settle on is the significance of just the, the format. How could this happen? Right. Yeah. And um, I also want to mention to, to the listeners, for instance, we, uh, we have been focused, we throw out a weird what the if here, and then we, we talk a lot about the science trying to tie it together. Um, but obviously implicit in, all, in everything we're doing is also science fiction writing. And um, I'm not a professional science fiction writer per se, but I do, um, I've studied an enormous amount of writing and um, mm -hmm. about writing and how you do it and the, and, um, the structure and all this kind of stuff. And so I think some of the fun of this show, and maybe we'll explore it more going forward, is this, this whole other process of writing science fiction, which um, is a un somewhat unique challenge in writing. I mean, uh, in any kind, in a novel or, mm -hmm. you know, you, you still want it to be um, all logically consistent within that world. That's what makes that world real. And in mysteries, for instance, the details of all the little pieces having to go together is important. Yeah. Science fiction is, uh, I guess, hard science fiction, as they call it, where pl places more emphasis on trying to basically talk as much about real science as possible. <laughs> yeah. Sort of minimal departure from what's already known. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, from that we can learn an enormous amount about just science. And, and we also can learn a lot about, it's kind of like role playing for scenarios that might happen. So this could happen. I'm not saying it can happen. It'd be totally weird. Um, and so, yeah, right. Let's just focus on what is it? The mere fact of this existence. So of uh, this haiku appearing on the screen. Um, I think that, it, you can't get away from the fact that somebody's, some intelligent force is meddling with the collider, right? It, there, there's no way a oh, natural yeah. force could, the coincidence, so how do scientists deal with this where, uh, remember uh, Carl Sagan's, one of Carl Sagan's greatest say, sayings, I think it was him, right? Who said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Right. And so um, it's, how would a scientist describe this and sort of say, basically rule out this being just regular old nature? Um, well, it turns out that distinguishing intelligent action from complicated natural processes is not easy. And this is one of the things that SETI has to deal with. 
right? Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, but the kanji, the, 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 these letters, you know, that it basically, this is a little bit more complicated, but it's sort of the equivalent of like looking up. Oh, here's a good example. Okay. I, I found this a haunting discovery when I first saw it because I didn't know much about the context uh, or, or much about the full subject of science in this matter. But there's a hexagon in the, on the North Pole of Saturn. Oh, yeah. That's a good example. I mean, when I saw that, I just saw it. I just saw the picture and I saw the headline. And my first thought was, okay, there's got to be a scientific explanation. I'm curious to hear what it is. But the I, I got to say the emotional, <laughs> my subconscious just leapt forward and said, Arthur C. Clarke was right. <laughs> like, holy God, he was an alien. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this is, I guess, where where you need Sagan's maxim of extraordinary evidence and extraordinary claims. Right. So it's uh, it would be an extraordinary claim to say that that hexagon was created by aliens or as an intelligent message. Right. And that's extraordinary because that's at the that claim is at the limits of what we can conceive about the universe, that there are intelligent aliens out there that can engineer planets. Um Whereas it would not be a very extraordinary claim to say uh, or, or to even hypothesize that sometimes weather patterns can take geometric shapes. Okay. So that, that's a kind of explanation that is not particularly extraordinary. So that's the one you go to first. Right. So even if you had not seen that before, you would say to yourself, oh, well, maybe, maybe weather... Uh, some kind of storm can mm-hmm. put the clouds in this formation where there are yeah, six straight right. sides. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's, uh, that's, that's a, a part of the way science works that we don't talk about a whole lot is that we already have expectations for the sort of answers we're going to get mm. to our questions. Right. Mm. And that's a really important thing in terms of scientific functioning is, uh, you know, uh, cutting down the possible explanations early on. Um, and that lets you get a lot of work done. Okay. Uh, So you say, given the things we already know about the universe, what kinds of things can we, can we exclude? So we can, you know, we're pretty sure that it's not a herd of goats on Saturn. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. That's, that's just, so preposterous that we don't even need to entertain it as a possibility. So we can just discard goats. You mean that the herd of goats would have made this shape? Yeah, exactly. By right. running around. Say that's just, that's right. It's just so weird right. that yeah. we're not even going to bother. A lot, right. <laughs> They'd have to be space breathing goats. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it doesn't, so, I mean, eventually you can get to a Sherlock Holmesian kind of moment of mm-hmm. saying I, I've discarded mm-hmm. all other possibilities so it must be this. Um, mm-hmm. And that does happen sometimes, but uh, it's the intelligent alien hypothesis is way down the line. Right, right, right. And, um, and uh, uh, another example of this that, uh, oh, sorry, just to, to wrap up the hexagon thing is what, sure. it, I guess it was well known that in fluid dynamics, when you st- stir or spin, uh, like if you put a bunch of water in a bucket and you spin the bucket and the water starts spinning, you can get a, he- a hexagon pattern. Can yeah, you can, you can do this in the lab. Right. And it's like, you know, it's, it's geometry. Mm-hmm. Maybe it has something to do with, you know, it's fluid dynamics. Fluid dynamics is just crazy. Yeah. It's awesome. 
Um, so, uh, love your local, uh, support your local fluid dynamicist. It's important. Yes, that's right. Br- bring them food and water as they go slowly insane. Yeah. <laughs> Try to keep them from staring at the waters make sure they drink it and don't study it. So, uh, similar things have happened recently. Um, there have been observations, uh, you know, as we look for exoplanets, planets around other stars, than our sun. Um, we look at the flashing of, we, we're looking at stars and we're seeing how they, sometimes things pass in front of the star with a regular pattern. Right. Yeah. And there was, uh, there's one, is it Tabby's star? Is that the one where they said, oh, maybe yeah, this is a Dyson sphere, a giant mm-hmm. alien structure. Doesn't quite match up. Yeah. Right. Um, and generally here's the, it's the public that kind of leaps as you said, the journalists first, perhaps, mm-hmm. and the public for sure. Um, We'll leap to those things, and uh, the public doesn't have the tools to whittle down. Right. All the, and, and, and let's be honest, the public doesn't have the desire <laughs> to whittle <laughs> right. that. Right? We want that. Yeah, time, answer. tools, or desire. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I'm meaning to ask, um, I'd love to ask some astronomers, there mu- or, and do you know of times where, I feel like there must be times where an astronomer looked at something and was like, oh my God, maybe this is that or the people who look at the photographs from the Mars rovers where they suddenly were like, wait a second. Oh, sure. So I should say the classic example of this, we actually just had the uh, 50th anniversary uh, yesterday of the discovery of what now we call pulsars Mm, by mm, Jocelyn mm. Bell, um, even though she doesn't get the Nobel Prize for it. She's the one who discovers it. Um, And, you know, she writes in the it's these intensely regular radio pulses. And initially it's thought that it's so regular that it has to be artificial, right? That's, that's clearly a FM broadcasting station somewhere in the galaxy. So the, someone famously writes LGM um, next to the data, meaning little green men. Just to clarify, Uh, it wouldn't, it wasn't like when you say FM radio station, it wasn't like it was all kinds of changing Sounds or something like it was speech, but it was a single regular, more like a, like a lighthouse or something. Yeah, exactly. It's this hyper regular. Right. right. Um, thing. Uh, but at the time, nobody could think of any natural sources that, right. would, that would generate radio waves that way. Um, and now we're quite sure that those regular pulses are generated by uh, a rotating neutron star, which is itself a pretty bizarre entity, right. uh, but less bizarre than aliens, I guess. Yeah. Uh, right. It's, uh, I think uh, the more scientifically oriented you are, the more you can get excited about that. Yes. If you don't know anything, (laughs) it's just like either it's aliens or it's something not interesting to me. Um, did they know about neutron stars before? Well, you see, they knew about it as kind of a vague hypothetical possibility. Oh, wow. Okay, uh, cool. But no one knew. No, it had never occurred to anyone that this would be a way that you could find a neutron star. Right, right. Oh, that's awesome. This is another one of these sort of double whammies. I think in some earlier episode, we discovered something like this, too, where they, um, this, it's like, oh, by the way, neutron stars exist and they can spin. And when they spin, yep. they emit this. That's right. And you can hear them. Yeah. And you can hear that, right, um, um, on the radio. That's right. But so our, our haiku is a little different in that it's not just peculiar right. the way pulsars were. Right. Um, but it's actually recognizable in terms of a culture existing here on Earth. Right. That's, it's right. very, right, that's right. Yeah. 
Um, so, you know, the, uh, the sort of classic version of this would be uh, kind of the um, creation science fantasy is that, you know, at some low geological level, the, the book of Genesis is literally written in rocks. Right. So, oh. so there are these, there are these like fundamentalist, um, science, uh, science fiction stories that, that go like this. Oh, you mean um, if you, if you look the microscope at a rock or something, you would. Yeah. Something like that. Right. right. Or, or, you know, astronomers land on Venus and the book of Deuteronomy is, is laying on the ground there. Right? This, <laughs> you go um, all the way to Venus and the, the one book you get is Deuteronomy. Yeah, I know that's right. And not the most exciting of books, right? I mean, give me, you know, Maccabees or Ruth or something. I mean, those right. are good fun. Right. Um, but so there's, so the fact that it's a haiku and in Japanese suggests that there's some profound uh, connection between Japanese culture and the nature of the universe. Right. Uh, Amaterasu, right. The, the sun goddess. Is created that the, the laws of physics? Yeah. Is that a Japanese? Uh, yeah, goddess? she's the uh, the sun goddess. Yeah. Amaterasu. That's cool. Um, it remi- this reminds me a little bit of um, one of the best, one of my favorite science fiction books ever. In fact, I just bought my fifth copy because uh, a friend of mine tweeted. Um, Andy Anatka, by the way, great tech journalist, <laughs> spent all day Black Friday tweeting like. Every few minutes, uh, great Black Friday things he had found on Amazon. And one of them was, you know, a copy of Childhood's End and uh, um, yeah. by Arthur C. Clarke. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, one of the, it's a classic of the classics. It's like a fundamental book in science fiction, I think. And uh, I said, uh, oh, God, I just love that book so much. It, it, it is very meaningful to me. It was one of the books I read as a kid that just opened my eyes in a way that Star Wars might in movies. And mm-hmm. um, like, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Um Anyway, so I bought, uh, I said, you know, if I had, didn't already have four copies of this, because I kind of <laughs> end up buying it like every 10 years or something. And I just turned 50 and I was like, screw it. Yeah, I'm buying one for the fifth <laughs> decade. So, um, in, oh God, I don't know one. To, I'm not going to give it away. There's, yeah. there's, there's yeah. so many amazing revelations in Childhood's End. This is one of Arthur C. Clarke's gifts, mm-hmm. like pulling rabbits out of a hat, so to speak. Um, but there is something that is just, that happens. Uh, they see something and, um, uh, let's say it's a particular kind of creature and it's like, wow, that, this is not alien at all. This is like the kind of creature we all, right. We recognize this. Yeah. We reckon like this is in storybooks going back eons. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that they had appeared in some early state. And so the idea would be with this Japanese that Japanese, I think the most likely thing is it's a, there would be two possibilities. One that whoever was projecting sending, if, we, if they were sending a message that they were sending it in Japanese, that'd be like trying to communicate to the Japanese or something like that, or who knows what. Oh, but yeah, it seems right. more so, likely that Japanese would have grown out of this thing from the past. Right. So that's, yeah. So that's another standard trope. In, mm-hmm. in not just science fiction, but sort of um, Eric von Daniken, mm. ancient aliens mm-hmm. kind of thing, that, that aliens came to humanity in some prehistoric time and shaped us in some way, and that right. there are artifacts of that left behind. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, so language is a common one, appearance of the, the aliens, 
Um, Babylon Five also mm. does a does a, a version of this too. Mm-hmm. Um, Stargate. Uh, yeah, Stargate. Yeah, that would be the classic. Yeah, great one. Not classic, but maybe the the the, the platonic ideal of this story. Yeah. Is that, uh, yeah, you can go to other planets and speak Celtic to them because the aliens came here originally and gave us that language. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that would be, so So what? So then all of a sudden, uh, Japanese historians uh, are the best people to consult for physics, right? <laughs> we, should, we should go through and, and troll through, you know, Shinto myths for, for clues to the nature of the standard model. Um, well, that'd be pretty, be pretty cool. Um, this would be a great sign. There probably has got to be a Japanese uh, science fiction book. <laughs> like this. Um, okay. So we put that aside for a second because still the looming uh, elephant in, in the room is that even so, even if Japanese somehow evolved from some whatever, why is this on the screen? I think that would be the first thing they have to answer, okay. right? Yeah. Right. The, the technical, Something really happened in nature that caused this to happen. And so it reminds me of, um, not to give away too much about uh, the three-body problem series. Yep. Okay. But in that, it it involves aliens kind of manipulating colliders, actually. Yep, that's right. Exactly. And uh, they, they have a totally different purpose and all that kind of stuff. This is not at all really a spoiler. So read those books. Oh my God. Um, but somehow they're basically, I mean, it, it's such a complicated thing they'd have to <laughs> getting, you know, it's just, it, it just makes no sense for there, as we said, for there to be any natural way that smashing protons together and having them put out a particle shower and that data being shown on a screen should somehow transform itself into haiku letters on the screen. Something is doing yeah. that. And this is, I think there's, um, you know, it's what uh, Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher and historian of science would have called a, an out of paradigm situation. Right? Mm, what so does that mean? So Kuhn um, in his famous book, Structure of Scientific Revolutions, postulated that science isn't done in a kind of free form epistemological space where all things are possible, but rather you have clearly designated questions to ask and solutions you expect. Um, and that, that shapes the way science is done. So he says doing science is what he calls normal science is like, uh, filling out a crossword puzzle. Okay. So there's, uh, there are unknowns that you're trying to find, But there are certain rules to what those unknowns should look like and how you should go about filling in those blank spaces. Mm. So when so when you're doing a crossword puzzle, for instance, um, you assume that uh, the words are going to run left to right and top to bottom. Right. And that that they'll be written in Latin characters and so on. Right. Um, So to use Kuhn's crossword metaphor here, um, the the haiku is like finding that your crossword puzzle is 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 an audio thing, right? It's a sound instead of being written down. Right? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so, so it's not that... So if you said to me, the solution to this crossword puzzle is the following sound, you know, blah, uh, you, you wouldn't but say... But not I'm, spelled out. You're not writing blah. That's right, yeah. It's like the... You, uh, wouldn't, this is, wouldn't, you wouldn't say to me that I'm wrong, 
you'd say I'm not even answering the right question anymore, right? right. I, I have fundamentally misunderstood what it means to do a crossword puzzle. Right. So in the in the box, in the four down box, <laughs> that should be a sound. Yeah. Not okay. you don't write it. You don't draw you don't, it. That's right. It's not an onomatopoeia. <laughs> you just you just go ah. <laughs> And that's so so the haiku being the what you get out of the particle collider is like that. It's not that a haiku is the wrong answer to the question of does the Higgs boson exist. Right. It's not even the same thing. It's not uh, it's not it's not that it's not in the ballpark. It's not the same sport. Right. So this is why it's 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 so challenging to answer. Like how would scientists react to this? Because it's not even a possibility within their worldview. Right. And, and, and I'm going to uh, just, just to touch on it. And then I want to go into fast forward mode, but um, the notion that, you know, there's probably a lot of people, I don't know about listening to the show necessarily, but you know, in, in the world who would just say, Oh, well, that's God, right. Or that's, yeah, a super, that's right. you know, God, or mm-hmm. if you're pantheistic, you know, some God is, uh, it's a supernatural being, Put that there for us, blah, blah, blah. which right. I, I, I would actually point out is, is, is interesting. Science doesn't take that easy. I'm going to call it the easy way out of just say, oh, that's what it is. Even if it was that, the explanation of that <laughs> would be utterly fascinating. Yeah, that's know? right. How did how did God manipulate it in this particular way? And yeah. there are, so there's many scientists in the past who were themselves religious and looked at the laws of nature and came to exactly this kind of conclusion that there were various characteristics to the laws of nature that showed that they were created uh, by a divine force. But that didn't stop them from doing science. And they wanted to know, okay, so how do all these things interact? And and, in what way was the universe actually created? So you can still, so just thinking that there's a divine explanation behind something doesn't have to stop you from doing more science. Right. And, uh, let's go fast forward. And I want you, you, you take it fast forward. What do you think um, they, I think the next step would be discovering, let's say they could discover how it was done. It's a physical process. It might take a long time. Mm-hmm. They discover how it's done. They probably would discover one or perhaps more than one um, physical properties or interactions. They would learn something about that, that we didn't know. We'd never like, yep. just like quantum mechanics is a completely new way of seeing what's going on. Oh, wow. This is a whole way of nature interacts. Nature acts in this bizarre way. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At that scale, you know, um, but eventually we'd have to get to the, the question of who is it? And well, I'll just sort of, I mean, could it be a, a, a uh, someone from another dimension? Yep. Okay. That would seem to me the most likely in order to get something such a bizarre interaction, right? Because multi interdimensional interactions are really weird. Yeah, assuming they happen at all, right? With some, right, right, right. right. <laughs> we genuinely don't know. Oh no, I thought that was a given. For instance, in that we we pointed out before, but the the book Flatland, Flatlander, mm-hmm. Flatland um, deals with this. If you're a two dimensional world and a three dimensional object. Like an apple yeah. comes and lands on that piece of paper world. Um, and all they know is forward and backward and left and right and two dimensions. They wouldn't see an apple at all. All they would see is the parts of the apple that touch this world. They would just appear. And if the apple has like four little feet, you know, it'd be like four. Yeah, it would look 
Completely four black. things appear. Um, it would, here's, here's what I'll jump to. Here's the, the, the thing. How does the world change? Nah. Right. Let's say, let's say this is where we, this is where the story is. We don't know who it is, mm-hmm. but we know that it's something has to be interfering. So something is intentionally doing this. How does the world react? Well, anime fans are very excited. Right? <laughs> because apparently Japanese oh, right. is the way to talk across right. <laughs> boundaries or whatever. Um, That's true. I think the Japanese, the true. choice of Japanese is important. It is important, right? Very yeah, so important. That's, that, that would strike me as the most important thing I would want resolved. Right. Um, is right, exactly right. what that means. Because it's hard for me not to come up with a Chariots of the Gods style explanation for that uh-huh, uh-huh. um and I, I would say it would it would fully overthrow um the way i conceive of the universe i would have to start from first principles again right. um and i think that's right it, it would require a full reworking of the way we think about both science and history right and when you just when you say restarting from first principles what does that mean well um first principles you, are well, oh, so the first principles would be the, the most basic statements about the universe. So for, for modern science, that would be something like um, the universe runs on uh, impersonal laws that do not vary in time or space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's uh, assumed that these are impersonal and have no particular connection to humanity. But now we've apparently established that not only do they have some connection to humanity, humanity but a specific culture in humanity too right so the laws of nature are now culturally dependent in a way that they were not before oh except i think um right well the question is are the laws of nature or is it that um in my mind it was that the laws of nature are the same but this other Oh, but there's an someone's able entity? to basically manip- just to yeah. do things like write. Mm-hmm. Basically, they're writing on this. You know, they're taking yeah. this thing and they're writing on this. Right. Screen. So that would, I mean, that would be an easier answer in that you don't have to go back to first principles. Then, right. Um, in fact, it reminds yeah. me of you know the uh, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke uh, and one of his most famous maxims um, mm-hmm. that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Right. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. this is how that would appear to us. Yep. This is magic in the way if we showed a television screen to ancient Japanese people. Yeah. That would be magic. Mm -hmm. That would be incredible. Yeah. So in that case, there's some connection between Japanese and, um, boy, it would just change the position of Japan. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Uh, and, and as they, and Japanese poets, right. Because it's, oh, it's, it's haiku. Written, right. Why right, haiku? It's written in a particular form right. is significant. Right. Um, yeah. Dun dun. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's interesting because this points out how hard it is to break really far from science. To yes, throw that's in. Right. exactly. It's it's uh, yeah. You can. It's a lot easier to think about pushing boundaries than to pick something way out. Right, right, right because right. there could be so much in between here and there. Right. Um, well, what's know, interesting too is it just very 
uh, almost too easily just goes into the realm of fantasy or religion or yeah, yeah I think it's just right. kind of like oh where in those stories anything can happen mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's probably a cautionary tale for science fiction writing generally yeah. is don't don't pick your point of divergence to be too big right if right. it's too big then it becomes disconnected from what we know very very fast yeah yeah and, and and i can see what basically one thing one thing i know for sure that would happen is that japanese and japanese culture would be so uh, revered or fascinating or whatever that we kind of would go into a Blade Runner-esque world where um, Japanese kind of becomes like everybody would be studying Japanese. Yeah, of course. And and like the whole world like would be looking now <laughs> this insanely difficult task of yeah going through Japanese culture and digesting it and looking for some connection to how could it be that these some other dimensional force is communicating. So they have become like the chosen people. Yep, that's right. I think that is oh, that, that, well, that's a totally reasonable conclusion. Yeah, yeah. Well, happy Hanukkah, Japanese people. <laughs> Congratulations, you are the chosen. Um, yeah. Very cool. By the way, speaking of Blade Runner, I just got to throw out a recommendation. If you can see it, if it's still playing in theaters, Blade Runner 2049, have you seen it? Yeah, we saw, uh, saw it just uh, last week. It's one of the most beautiful movie it is beautiful yeah Yeah. um not the greatest story of all time but just gorgeous to watch yeah well well, like the original i'm totally mystified exactly what happened and i want it's it's i gotta say it's one of the first movies ever that i felt like i really definitely want to go back and see it before it leaves the theaters one because it was so beautiful but also because i think i can probably get a little deeper on the story and figure out but, right, well, uh, if you figure it out, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> well, movies like 2001 to me as a kid was just like totally made no sense at all. And now I can tell you exactly what, <laughs> what it is. It's somewhat straightforward. Um, well, this is this has been I, I have, for one, enjoyed the danger of going out beyond the edge. Uh, a little think, terrifying. Yeah. We were like I said, last episode, we were like Wiley e. Coyote out in the we ran over the edge of the cliff. We were hanging in the air. We had not looked down yet. We now look down. We went all the way to the bottom, and mm-hmm. we still haven't hit the ground. That's right. But the anvil is like right the, over our head, coming <laughs> that's down. That's right. That's the final thing that happens: is an enormous anvil comes flying towards the earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a there's a there's a kanji stamped on top of right, the, right. Yeah. Which, if you translate it, it says Acme. <laughs> what? <laughs> Roadrunner, beep, beep. Awesome, awesome. Well, this this, this brings to an end this uh, exciting trilogy. Um, but like all things, it opens up so many new questions. Next week, we'll continue. I'm, I'm just going to put it out there. Next week, I want to talk about Flat Earth. Flat Earth? Oh, that's a good idea. Okay. Right? I mean, everyone's yeah. talking about it. I think most of it, there's just a lot of hucksters. But, um, yeah, what if the Earth were flat? What the if the Earth were flat next week on What the If? Um, please go to iTunes, um, if you haven't done it already, iTunes, and uh, leave us a review. Five stars would be great. If you can write a few words, that's cool. And also, we don't know. It's funny, a, a bunch of friends of, uh, on Facebook told me 
I said, oh, here's my podcast. You know, I want you to take a listen. They're like, oh, we've been listening and we love it. <laughs> so I think maybe people think that we know who's listening. We have no, no we idea. Have, we have no idea. But th- yeah. That is a bigger mystery than anything. Um, tell us. Feedback at whattheif.com and uh, say hello. All right, Matt, I will talk to you next week where the earth will be flat, 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 flat. On Farewell. what? The... Yeah. 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 Um, um. All right. <laughs>